it probably won't surprise you to know that I don't spend a great deal of money on hair care. It's not that funny. Um, you know, I, I, I get in the shower and, and uh, Rhonda's got five or six bottles of stuff, all of which costs like $20 a piece. And I don't really get that. And, and, and it, but I'm the guy who shops for, for shampoo in the end cap at Crest. You know, I mean, just whatever's 99 cents. It's not going not to hurt this mop. So, so you know, I, could, I, I could, uh, could wash it with a bar of soap. I don't do that. At least I buy shampoo. So it's just not going to affect me much, right? Um, uh, you know, I, I, I used to kind of... I used to kind of shave my head myself, you know, going to do this. And it's just such a mess that the, my only, the only money I spend on hair care is I do go to the barbershop every two or three weeks. You have that thing done. So, because it's just too messy otherwise, and I don't like to do it myself. But otherwise, I don't really fuss a lot over hair, and you can kind of understand why that would be, right? It's kind of, you know, you wash it, hit it with a towel, we're good for the day. I used to, you're right. I used to have hair, you're right. And it took more time than I care to remember. Now, but I live with a girl who is all about hair in a lot of ways. And, and one of the things she's about, and, and she's going to look around the room today, and she's going to catch some of you fellas. I, I, see, I never had the thought. I've, I've had the thought of just completely shaving my head, and then I, I did this thing where I just cut it a little short, you know, I cut it short like, a, like, a, like the old burr haircut back in the day. It's kind of what I, I ask them for, you know, uh, because I just didn't want to mess with it. Um, but there are some guys who go to elaborate trouble to hide, you know, this solar panel back here. Um, uh, they'll either, you know, have plugs done or, or do one of those other things, which, you know, th those toupee things. So and my wife though, is, 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 she claims that she can tell when a guy's wearing a toupee. Now I have a, I have a colleague in ministry that lives in another state and he literally had three, had three, he would literally cycle them through. He'd had, he had a short one and a medium-length one, and a longer one, and then he'd start over every month. He made it look like he needed a haircut and just not going to do that. Now, my wife said, here's what she says, and by the way, we've been with Alabama people this weekend, and she gets a little more Alabama-sounding the more we're with people from the South, and she will say, he ain't fooling nobody. How many hundreds of times have you said to me, he ain't fooling nobody? Even to guys who have a healthy, you know, bouffant head of hair, that's probably when you pull it, you know, it, it, but she, he ain't fooling nobody. Now, Rhonda, if there's somebody in here that ain't fooling nobody, I don't want to know about it. You hear me? <laughs> don't let her lock eyes with you. She'll be telling me about it at lunch. <clears throat> uh, there you go. Yeah, uh, uh, you know. The, yes. She really wishes choir would start up so she wouldn't have to sit in here with me. Now, here's the issue. Nobody likes a poser. 
Isn't that, am I right? Nobody really likes a poser. Somebody who claims to be something they're really not or they dress up the outside of the barn while there's nothing going on inside, right? Now, as we get into this fourth chapter of Corinthians, we're going to kind of deal with this issue that the true gospel is just that because it's the real deal coming from God. It depicts what actually happened. There's no posing going on at all. But the issue is, if the gospel is going to be effective, it has to be proclaimed by people whose lives reflect its truth. Messengers whose lives have been changed by the gospel first. You would not want to hear me speak if my life didn't line up somewhat at least with the gospel I proclaim. There has to be a change of life first. Now, Paul's going to be, he's been dealing for several chapters here, and he's going to deal with a few more, for a few more, with his two letters to the Corinthian church were, in part at least, responses to criticisms of his own ministry. Many people in Corinth saw Paul as bold and powerful in his writing, but not all that good of a, a speaker or a teacher. In fact, they preferred really eloquent, powerful teachers, whereas Paul was um, much more effective probably when he wrote than when he spoke, although I can't imagine him not being effective as a speaker too. It's just they didn't like his style for one reason or another. So Paul is responding to some of these criticisms, but he does more than just defend himself. That would just be defensiveness. He's going to defend today the gospel. And he says the power of the true gospel is not in the skill of the messenger, but in the message itself. And in the messenger's Deep personal commitment to the message. That kind of a commitment, he says, is going to give the messenger a transformed or a changed character in the way we live. All right, let's go to chapter 4. Bob, do you mind read the first six verses of 2 Corinthians, uh, sorry, yeah, 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 6. Here we go. Okay, here's the question I want us to, I'm going uh, to give a question and then I'm going to give a Rhonda-esque answer to it as we get into this, okay? What type of life, what kind of life does the gospel demand of those who proclaim it? What kind of life does the gospel command of those who proclaim it? And we're going to hear my Alabama girl's voice in the background saying, you ain't, Carol, you get it, you're an Alabama girl. You ain't feeling nobody. Okay? All right. Caught that? Now let's dive into it a little bit. You and I serve from an obligation, and I hesitate to use that word because that makes a lot of people really, really nervous. But the idea is that I've been dealt mercy and grace uh, in such incredible quantities that I've got this kind of obligation that lives inside me that transforms me and that transformation is just the heart of gratitude. That's what goes in that line. Gratitude. In other words, being so overwhelmed by the love of Jesus poured out in my life, I want to tell other people about it. 
It's a transforming power. It's going to change if you allow it to act on your life. It's going to change what you do. It's going to change decisions you make. It's going to change the way you spend your money. It's going to change the way you spend time. Now, in that, the gospel, in verse 2, Paul kind of indicates this idea that the, the gospel can never become self-serving. Now, in Paul's day, uh, many, all kinds of religious teachers were notorious for being schemers and dishonest. And it became clear to their hearers often, or certainly to the Apostle Paul, who was the real deal, it became clear to him that they were in this only for some kind of personal gain. And he just said, it's not supposed to be that way. Aren't you glad that that kind of thing ended in the first century? Okay, I'll let you reach your own conclusion about that. Now go with me to Acts 18.11. Let's hear how Paul describes his life among these kind of people. His life among the Corinthians as well as others. Acts 18.11, what did he do? Somebody got that and we'll read it. Even among the Corinthians, he was there a long time. He lived among them. If there had been any fakeness to him, they would have sniffed that out in that time, right? Okay? So the idea here is that if he was going to be self-serving, he would have tipped his hand to that at some time during this time he was living with Now, verse 3, he begins to talk about the facts of the message. I'm going to go uh, to the New American Standard. I'm going to read from verse 3. Uh, from my translation, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Now, we've got to kind of come to terms here with what we're talking about, about the message. Look, look back a page or two at, um, actually, half a dozen pages or so, at 1 Corinthians 1. Let's look at verse 18. A lot of people's one of the one of the favored verses of Paul in Corinthians. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, Paul doesn't want us to be confused about the message of the gospel. In fact, he's going to say that if one refuses to the respond to the message of the gospel, then it's not really either the message or the messenger that can be faulted in that. If, if someone in your life is not responding to the gospel, it's not because the message is faulted, certainly, right? In, in, in 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul talks about, this is the message of the cross. The greatest message ever told. It's not the fault of the message, and it may not be the fault of the messenger. In fact, there were those um, who... Uh, we're kind of wondering if, if some of these aren't coming into the fold, maybe it's just because Paul isn't all that effective as a teacher. Wow. The greatest teachers I know, in fact, the one that follows me next hour, will often talk about the role of the hearer if the message is going to connect. And he'll say, when you, when you talk to Cliff about how something really meant something to you when he teaches, he'll say that says more about you than it does about me. And he's right. I have a role as the hearer. 
to listen, apply, respond, repent, whatever whatever's re- required of the gospel message. There is a role that I'm to play as a hearer of the message. Now, this condition of having been exposed to the gospel and yet not being impacted by its message is what Paul is going to call in verse 4 spiritual blindness. You can put the word blindness in that blank. Okay? Would somebody go over to Ephesians 2, 2? Hang on just a minute. I'll let you read in just a second. Would you hold on just a second? Let me set it up. You always want to talk more than I want you to talk. You know, I couldn't do this without you, and you know that. But this is, this is a mother and son having a little bit of a spat, okay? She knows I love her. And I, and on, I don't think it's ugly. I think on certain days she loves me. Now, read verse 1 and 2 of Ephesians 2. Would you do that, please? Okay, go ahead. All right. The key here is that he, he identifies the enemy of your soul as the king of this world. He's the ruler of this world. I don't want you to be dismayed about that or concerned about that, but you need to know about it. That the enemy of your soul is in charge of this world. If you doubt the truth of what I'm telling you, you haven't read the paper lately. Am I right? The Lord is in the process ever since um, uh, 33 AD. The Lord is in the process of taking kingdom back. Taking the world back. But he's not done yet. And so that Satan is still kind of in charge of what's going on here in so many ways. And he can st- strike people with Blindness. Where the gospel is, he uses the word, the gospel is veiled. The message is veiled to them. Now, um, does Paul know anything about blindness? I think he does. I put the reference in there to Acts 9, where uh, he is going the absolute wrong direction as a guy that wanted to serve God. He's going the wrong direction, including being uh, kind of the uh, prosecuting attorney for lots of Christians who were being put to death in his day. And he is stricken blind by the blinding light of the holiness of Jesus Christ. Spends a little time with him. And his life does a 180. Right? Paul is going to understand about having um, the wool pulled over your eyes. He's going to understand about this. He's, He's going to understand about having that blindness lifted. When a person rejects the gospel, it doesn't mean that the gospel is weak. It doesn't mean that the person presenting it is weak. It means that the devil is doing a really, really good job at veiling the gospel in that, in that case. And we need to pray about that particular spiritual battle. Okay, now, let's go into verse 5. The focus of the message is not who's presenting it. It ought to be Christ. 
Marty used uh, John 3.30 a couple of weeks ago when he talked about um, uh, how John said, he must increase and I must decrease. Literally, we can apply that here. The message is not the issue. I mean, the messenger is not the issue. The method of the messenger is not the issue. The issue is the message itself. The issue is the clear, resounding message of the gospel. When the messenger becomes less, then Christ can become more. He is, his message is proclaimed by servants as the king of servants here. It's talked about in, in verse 5, being a servant. And those, those servants, let me read verse 5 again to you. For as, just as the sufferings of Christ, see his servanthood here, are ours in abundance, so our comfort is abundant in Christ. Um, wrong chapter, sorry gang. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord. Ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. We learned servanthood from Jesus, from his servanthood himself. And so, as in serving him as messengers of his, um, we, we share that message in word, in what we say, and. It's important that that, that word is, is going forth. But it's also important, the character of the messenger. That it lines up to the character of Jesus Christ. Now, verse 6 is beautiful. Let me read it to you from, from my transition. If we are afflicted, it's for your comfort and so I'm still in the wrong chapter. I'm looking right at it and going to the wrong chapter. Here we go. God thought, that's not what I need to read. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness... Where did he say that? Genesis 1-3 from the very beginning. Let there be light, and there was light. Catch that? He started it that way. Okay, he's going to make a connection here to Genesis 1. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now, the gospel is shining then outward into the world and inward, inside, into the hearts of those who receive it. That's kind of the issue here. There's a public truth being proclaimed, but it comes from messengers who have had an inward, very private change. Really important, isn't it? Now, the next passages. The next few verses, verse 7 through 12, are really, really important. And they're, they're very uh, picturesque. There are, there are word images there that you can really kind of grab onto. And I want us to, to use that now. Somebody who uh, would like to uh, read verse uh, 7 through 12. Isn't this beautiful words? Now let's begin with the first kind of um, a word picture that he uses it's talking about a jar. What you need to think about, maybe you've got on your patio or on your front porch a large earthen vessel of some kind uh, uh, that you plant flowers in or whatever. Okay, Something that um, is large and maybe heavy, made of clay originally. Now, the idea here is he's going to contrast the pottery with what's inside it. Okay? And the contrast is all important here. While the container 
may be common, its contents are priceless. The container, he says, is like a jar of clay. Now, by the way, by the container, he's talking about you and me. Okay? The container may be very common. I think Paul here is feeling himself. He's, he's feeling the sting of some of this criticism of how he teaches. And he's saying, you know, the, the container doesn't matter all that much. It's what's inside the jar that counts. What's inside? Say that again. The power of God inside the jar. The idea here is inside us is the gospel message. The power of God unto those who believe. And so he says, you don't need to worry about whether or not the messenger is all that effective. It's the message that counts. Now, does that give uh, those of us who proclaim the gospel um, an out for preparing and being creative and doing all that? No, it's not his point at all. Can you imagine Paul not being creative, who, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote all this stuff to begin with? He's just saying, you know, they can criticize me if they want to, but it really doesn't matter. Because what's important is what's inside, the message inside, that's struggling to get out. Okay? So... If the container is common, that doesn't really matter because the contents are priceless. Now, verse 8, I'm going to read it to you again from, from this translation. Uh, let me go back to, I'm going to, I'm going to do an Estella here and go back to 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are, by the way, if you're going through any kind of struggle today, verse 8 and 9 are for you. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. <laughs> We're perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Can I tell you something? And by the way, you may want to read in, um, a, a good reference here would be to read uh, Jeremiah's trip to the potter's house in Jeremiah 18. He goes and talks there and sees there how God um, uses this imagery of God making in you into a vessel, into a potter, into a pot. It's the potter's hand uh, crafting a vessel in his hands. The idea here is that the one who is making the potter, pottery, the one who making this jar in which the gospel is still is contained, this one, uh, the maker of that jar Make sure that the jar will not break. It'll not be crushed. Does that help you today to think about that? Um, ours is a life of paradox. Filled with contrasts of all kinds. And one of the ideas is that he, he, he kind of conveys three or four of those ideas right here when he says, we are afflicted, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Ever been perplexed? Lord, what are you doing here? What's going on? My, my life is a, is, is a daily process of, of perplexing things. And he says, you're not going to be crushed. You're not going to be destroyed. I think of those who are, who are struggling with so many difficult issues in other parts of the world and in our part of the world. How do they hold on to their faith? Maybe it's by these similar thoughts. Struck down but not destroyed. The one who made you 
and the one who remade you, who redeemed you, and made you an effective vessel for carrying the gospel around, is going to make sure that the bumps and the bruises of life doesn't, those things don't shatter you. Now, imagine here, we have uh, wood floors in part of our house at home, and they, they go through the kitchen. And what I recognize that if you've got a kitchen with tile or wood floors, is you have to treat fine vessels a little nicer than you, differently than you would if you had carpet on the floor, right? Um, we, I'm noticing that we're buying a lot more plastic these days because <laughs> it can fall on the floor and it might make a little bit of a mess, but it's not going to shatter. How many times in the past have I dropped something and it's just <clears throat> in a billion pieces when I dropped it? Rhonda has uh, on, uh, in our dining room, a uh, bowl and pitcher set that are how old? Two hundred years old. Did you catch that? They they used it to wash feet on the Mayflower or something. I I don't know, but uh, I I don't. Know. But it's old. Okay, you know, came from mom. It's, it, she she got real smug with it. It's Staffordshire. That's all I know. Thinking, all right, well, whatever. Uh, but the I'm not going to have a good day, Doyle. Can I go home with y'all? Somebody volunteer to take me home. <laughs> Here's the deal. I don't even touch it. I don't even touch it. If it needs dusting, it ain't going to be me. Because I would be the idiot that would drop it on the floor and it'd be in a thousand 200-year-old pieces. Just not going to do it. Do you know what God says to you? Whatever you're going through that is wrecking your life right now, is not, the one who made you is not going to allow that, whatever it is, to shatter you. He will never drop you on a hardwood floor. Never going to do it. Joe, I know it's been a long struggle. And I know there are certain days you think, Lord, what in the world are you up to? So I know, you go get in the shower and you write another poem on those days, and, that, and we're, we're glad for that. He's not going to drop and break you. Remember, he made you with his very own hands. And then he remade you through the power of the gospel of Christ. Oh, there's no way he would allow you to be crushed. Even though the circumstances surrounding your life may seem perplexing and crushing at times. Do you find comfort in this? I do. I really do. There's some of us that are more um, fragile than others. You think the Lord doesn't know that? There's some of us who've had a, a few more knocks and bruises than others throughout lifetime. Do you know the Lord's been with you through every one of those? There's some of us who uh, we might look on from the outside and say, what have they got to complain about? And yet, we all have our own internal challenges, don't we? Some of them are seen by others, some of them are not. It's interesting to me that the strongest people I've ever known are not those that have been exempt from crushing realities. 
In fact, sometimes I would pray and say, Lord, can you let this abate a little bit in their lives? And yet, I watched how time after endless time, the perplexing issues of life made them stronger, like in a kiln. On my birthday, when I was a young man, I would still get, even when I was in Kentucky, my, when my grandmother was living, she would still send me a birthday card with a dollar in it. You know, I'm 30 years old. She'd me a birthday card with a dollar in it. Uh, which is just wonderful. I, she remembered me. And she would always write. Um, my grandmother kept, um, she lived right by the Seton shop, and she would uh, uh, observe everything going on. And so typically, anytime she wrote you, she kept a diary that, that uh, I wish I could read through someday. I know where they are. I need to probably just borrow them and read through some of them. But she would keep kind of a weather diary of every day. And she would also watch uh, who was coming and going from the shop. And so one of the things that was nice about that is um, she got to see her boys every day, at least three of them, every day. And uh, she'd comment on who came by. And, you know, one of those guys who used to eat lunch with her most of those days. And she'd talk about other people coming by. And, and so she's reporting to me in this birthday card about those kinds of things. Now, knowing that, Grandma had spinal cancer that came from a breast cancer that she ignored for years because she was taking care of my grandfather and it was about him and not about her. Knowing that every day of her life was pain. I read all these details and then I read her last statement. God is so good. Why do I remember that 25 and 30 years later? Because it gave me the idea that here's a lady who had understood that she might be pressed and she might be pushed and that her life might be filled with pain, but she knew that God was not going to drop her and break her. He's just not going to do it. And she went to her grave with that wonderful testimony that hopefully will live in my life. And when I begin to complain a little too much, I think back at Ofa May and how she dealt with pain. God is so good. He's not going to destroy you. Oh, there's a destroyer. And he's got him on a short leash. Can I tell you that? He knows exactly when to tell him to cut it out. And he will. Can I tell you that? I'm getting really preachy. I've got to move on, don't I? Okay, here we go. Okay, so in verse 8 and 9, we kind of see this. How would you define persecution? I read one uh, identifier this week is the idea of deliberate harassment, but not destroyed. God has made you of tougher stuff. Look at verse 10. We are always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. Now, that doesn't sound very pleasant, does it? We're always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also might be manifested in our body. Now, what I want you to catch here, somebody go to John 16, 33, or maybe somebody can quote it. We'll get that in just a minute. The idea here is the one who died for you now lives inside you. What is true of the one who died for you? The one who died now lives. 
You remember that? Three days later. And he now lives inside you. It's the resurrection that causes us to endure the trouble of this life. Who, who grabbed us? John 16, 33. Cindy, thank you. In this world, you're going to have bumps and bruises and scrapes. And I think he says this when he says, but don't be dismayed. I think he says that to say, when that happens to you, don't worry about it. Don't be dismayed about it. Realize that it's just going to be that way. And realize, I have overcome the world. How did he overcome the world? He came through it. He lived in it 33 years. He was killed by it. And he came through alive. It's the resurrection that causes me to be able to get through this. Now, look at verse 11 as we kind of finish. Actually, I'll read 11 and 12 together. For we are who will live, are constantly, delivering, constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. The idea here kind of conveys the idea that the lives of people who belong to Jesus will inevitably conform to the pattern of his life. If he gave his life for the sake of others, then I'm going to do that too. Not as he did by dying for another person's sins. That was only needed one time. But in acts of um, self-denial, using my, my time, my ability, my treasure to serve others in Jesus' name. In so doing, we're going to allow Jesus' life to become clear to the world as it shines through this very common vessel. So, he brings life through death, dying to self. In the resurrection, God is saying to us, there are limits. There are no, I'm sorry, I need to back up. In the resurrection, God said to the world and says to you and me, there are no limits to what I can do. Now, the last line, let me fill in and then I want to, Illustrate and we'll close. Actually, let's read verse 13, 14, and 15. Having the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe. Therefore we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and present us with you. For all things are for your sake, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. When you and I share the gospel message, either through our words or what we do, or hopefully both. As people are coming to know him, the glory of God is shining forth more and more and more from inside us. So, those also now join us in praising God, and they'll praise him forever. So where does my faithfulness come in? Well, the key is in living what I would call an honest life, a transformed life, a life that is real and not fake. A long time ago, uh, a nephew, I think, gave my dad a Rolex. Gold Rolex, it's got like what appears to be diamonds marking the, uh, the, uh, all the spaces on the dial. Well, you know, knowing, knowing kind of this, the nature of this whole thing, Dad shows this to me, and, and he begins to wear it, and he eventually gave it to me. And, 
which I don't wear them, but, but, um, but it became real clear to me that this Rolex was probably bought, not bought at B.C. Clark. In fact, in fact, it, it appeared to me, just from the way it worked, kind of the way it looked, and just a little hinky, um, that it had a quartz movement, not a Swiss movement. And uh, I said, Dad, I think instead of buying that at the jewelry store, he may have bought that on the streets of New York from a guy that had a long overcoat. <laughs> we kind of laughed about that. He said, yeah, you're probably right. I don't think he would have given it to me if it was a real one, right? Yeah, you're right. But I still got it. Now, the truth is that none of us really like knockoffs, do we? What's a knockoff? It's a fake. There's some value to this name. And by the way, it's got the little crown on it. And the fact that Rolex is spelled Rolodex should matter, but... <laughs> but it looks almost right, right? Don't we hate knockoffs? It's something that there's, there's value in some item and somebody just turns out kind of fake copies of it. It's made out of, you know, 14 karat plastic, you know, that kind of thing. I just don't want to live my life as a knockoff. Can I be honest with you? And I don't want to live you to live your life as a knockoff. The world's got enough of those. Watch religious TV. Okay, never mind. <laughs> Marty and I are in league on that one. I just don't want to live my life as a fake. And so I've got uh, a sweet little red-haired lady who, who in my life has been such a gift at telling me, okay, buddy, you're on, on the edges here. I love you, and because I love you, I'm going to tell you, that's not really, that's a little hinky. I've got accountability people in my life who will say, you know what, I love you. You're, the, you're a great guy, but I've got to tell you something. You've got to change a few things. Because they, as well as I, want me to live my life not as a knockoff. There are just too many of those in the world. You know what? He doesn't want you to be a knockoff either. He bought, with, bought you with too precious a price to live anything but an authentic, God-inspired life-giving, light-giving life. Will you join me in that battle? I'll promise you this. It won't be easy. I heard the, the, the tremble in Cindy's voice when she read John 16, 33. It won't be easy. The truth is, He didn't promise you it would be. But He promised He will never leave you. And He'll make you. He'll make you into the vessel that he most wants you to become. Don't be a knockoff. You know why? Because my Alabama girl says, you ain't fooling nobody. <laughs> All right, I'll see you next week. <laughs>